an extended version of Inside Politics this morning. First, the political panel, Keith Baldry, Von Palmer, Rob Shaw, then Housing Minister Selena Robinson, followed by Health Minister Adrian Dix. Not done there. We'll also have Liberal leadership candidate Michael Lee in the studio. Accountable to you, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful morning out here in Kamloops. We're seeing some blue sky and sunshine. Day two of that after a long stretch of gray weather. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, guys, uh, let's. why don't we start off with Andrew Weaver, uh, who has, uh, again, um, rocking the boat, so to speak, uh, blustering off about what he doesn't like about the NDP government, drawing what he called a line in the sand on this LNG thing. And I guess the question off the top then uh, to you, Keith, uh, Weaver is huffing and puffing, but will he actually blow the house down? Well, you know, I called him out on Twitter a couple of days ago saying, I, don't, I basically don't buy this, that you're going to bring the government down after you know, less than a year over an issue that wasn't there in the summer, according to the NDP, when they negotiated this, this deal with them. Uh, he has plucked LNG out of the sky and said if uh, there's any notion of bringing LNG into B.C., he will bring down the government. Now, He's sitting there. I think he's in Palm Springs. I've been exchanging messages with him on on Twitter, going back and forth. You know, sitting by the poolside in the in the desert shade, in the desert sun, uh, sending off these blustery tweets. So we don't know whether that's actually Green Party policy yet. I haven't talked to Adam Olson and Sonia first, and all the other two Green MLAs. So I can't imagine want to give up their jobs after less than a year. They seem to be enjoying themselves so much. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting when he gets back into town. And that, now, the other thing, to put this in context, we're not going to have any LNG in B.C. in terms of projects going ahead anytime soon. There may be some movement in the fall, but not in the spring, which means the first two confidence votes of the NDP, the budget and the throne speech, and perhaps the, the supply bill, will, will be held before LNG rears its head in B.C. So... I guess, you know, Weaver can let that slide. The question is whether he'll stick to this bluster in position uh, come next fall or the following spring when perhaps we do have an LNG industry starting to emerge in British Columbia. Vaughn, what's your read on this thing? I found it odd that he would draw a line in the sand on LNG uh, after the Site C decision. Uh, yeah, I think Weaver better be careful he doesn't turn himself into a laughing stock. The... the uh, Horgan this week said he's on his way on an Asian trade mission. He is going to talk to some of the potential partners for LNG development here in British Columbia, the Shell Project in Kitimat. And what he said was exactly what was in the NDP platform, that the NDP has four conditions for supporting LNG. All the Premier did was report his position, repeat what has been his position for two years. For Weaver to, Weaver to pretend that that's some kind of a surprise that Horgan isn't playing fair with the agreement they made is just ridiculous. And I think the other issue that increasingly looms large with Weaver is all this talk of bringing down the government, is he serious when we know very, very well that the Greens, above all, are waiting for that referendum in the fall. They want proportional representation. And I think it increasingly sounds like he's bluffing. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Rob, uh, do you think this is bluster just so he doesn't look like the NDP's lapdog here, or what's your read on it? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I think we all have to remember that Andrew Weaver can't bring the government down without the Liberals. I mean, he uh, he's only three votes, and he, I don't see a scenario where, you know, let's say LNG Canada suddenly appears uh, uh, and they're going to build their $40 billion terminal in Kitimat. 
and Weaver gets upset about it, are the Liberals going to vote against that in the legislature to bring the NDP down? I, I have a hard time imagining, you know, that party given how much they've staked on LNG. So this is a reminder that, you know, as important as Weaver has been these past few months, the kingmaker, he is nothing without more votes. And uh, if he can't align himself with the Liberals on this, he stands alone as three, maybe even just one, uh, vote in the House uh, that does not bring the NDP down. So I, I, I don't, I mean, <laughs> it's a really, I, re, I reread CASA, the Confidence and Supply Agreement, this morning. There's no mention of LNG in it. Uh, and Weaver mm-hmm. has been telling us again and again and again on every issue that everything comes back to the CASA agreement, um, that it doesn't matter what people are saying it's about CASA well that's not in there and uh, I think that's another problem the NDP are going to have increasingly is if Weaver draws lines in the stand that he did not negotiate that are not in CASA uh, then it's going to be a, a problem for everybody well what's in CASA is is the the escape clause for the Greens is if there's any surprises uh, and that's actually a specific word in CASA and, and Weaver sent a message to me on Twitter saying he regards LNG as a quote surprise Mm. And he he interprets that as as his escape clause. So uh, he's changing, he's moving the goalposts here because uh, talking to NDP officials, they said they had discussions with him in the summer about LNG, about the conditions they placed on it, and they detected no problem from Weaver or the Greens on that issue. And suddenly, on the eve of Horgan going to China, Weaver springs this. And as Vaughn says, he's he's got to be careful. If this you know if it turns into a giant bluff. He's got to be careful he doesn't become a, a laughingstock of making these, these you know, boastful, uh, blustery uh, promises and then not delivering. So uh, he's playing, I think he's playing a dangerous game here. I, I, often, I, I want to touch that and keep on that point for just a second because it's not just the LNG thing. I mean, he routinely sounds off to some degree about whatever the issue is. I mean, the last big bluster was on Site C. Uh, but then he had the whole situation with the mayor of Fort St. John where he really landed himself in the mud. Uh, one wonders if maybe he needs to just take a second before he speaks. Well, all of us have learned that one way or another on social media and Twitter, uh, but you think maybe yes. Uh, in the Trump era, leaders should be careful what they say on social media. We were actually made this threat chain in an interview with the Smog Canada right at the end of the year, and then he repeated it around Horgan's trip to China. So, uh, and he's he's repeated it to Keith this week. So this isn't one tweet. This is a whole Andrew Weaver policy that's out there, and I do, as I said, I I think he runs a huge risk of mm-hmm. making himself look ridiculous. Uh, last word to you, Rob. Do you do you buy that the, the you can kind of shuttle the LNG thing under surprises? Because I don't think anyone who's paying attention to politics would find the NDP's position on LNG surprising. No, I'm surprised. You know, that surprises me. I, I, thought, I thought that he would uh, slot it more into the part of the CASA agreement that you know, uh, pushes the government to meet the climate targets, which it looks increasingly and has for a while now, like the, the government is not going to meet no matter which party is in power, and that LNG could get further pressure on that. And that was what I was thinking. But, you know, I mean, the, the counterpoint, I guess, to all of this is that the threat of a, of a snap election for the NDP, that the, if, you, if you put aside the fact that it's not even likely at all, but it would be very difficult for the NDP to suddenly go back to the polls right now. I think they haven't moved on a lot of the big election promises. We're still waiting for the housing plan. We're still waiting for the child care plan. You know, the transit issues that they talked about. So, you know, there he does have a little bit of, if he was really willing to do it, he does have a, a little bit of pressure on the New Democrats because they have been slow 
uh, to do some of the biggest things that people voted on. And I guess he's hoping that that is going to make the NDP sweat, but I, I just don't see it. And one of the other things we're waiting for is the NDP's plan to tackle uh, housing uh, as a crisis sweeps over the province. We'll dive into housing and real estate and the Premier's comments on that here on Radio NL's Inside Politics with Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry and Rob Shaw right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Centre. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, we're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Uh, guys, the Premier holding his first uh, press conference earlier this week uh, on a number of topics, uh, but the one that seems to have generated a lot of buzz is his comments on how to deal with the foreign buyer situation, where he basically said, listen, BC is not a gateway. We want, we're all sons or daughters of, immig- uh, of immigrants. Uh, we don't want to kind of stop the flow of people coming into the province, and uh, some of the sort of uh, ripple effects of that as well. He, he may or may not be missing the point. And Keith, what was your read on that? Well, you know, in the fall, after New Zealand brought in its ban on foreign um, ownership of real estate, uh, Horgan made it clear when we actually asked him to scrum back then, I think it was in October, November, he made it clear that BC was not going to be following suit. Uh, so in that respect, what he said was not new. What he did do, though, and he didn't do this in the fall, was sort of conflate the housing issue with immigration, which seemed to set some people off, uh, that uh, that he was missing the point. This wasn't about an immigration issue or turning off um, immigrants from from landing in BC. It was all about you know gobs of uh, foreign cash gaming the the housing market in BC. But uh, to be fair to him, you know he's going to he's signaled also that his government is going to be bringing in the speculation tax in the in the spring budget. And Carol James has mentioned that several times. So. He is going to be taking some action on that front, and I'm not. I've seen no evidence from anyone. Everybody suddenly is an armchair quarterback on solving housing in in British Columbia. You just go through the media; suddenly, reporters become experts on um, what what is needed to resolve the uh, the housing issue. And it's a complex file, and I've seen no evidence. Nobody's made a persuasive case that banning foreigners from owning real estate is suddenly the magic bullet that's going to cure the housing crisis. It seems to be. A lot more complex than that. I think um, talking to some NDP officials, they want to wait and see what New Zealand does in terms of the impact that their ban has on their situation, whether it actually does have a positive effect or a negative one or a benign effect. But they want to see some evidence before they move anywhere near such a revolutionary move. So uh, I'm not surprised what the Premier said, but he's drawing some heat again for, I think, unfortunately, uh, drawing parallels to immigration rather than just foreign cash for, for housing. Vaughn, your read on this, I know in our email exchange, you, you kind of mentioned to me, hey, he's not exactly, you know, ruling out taking action on this. No, I mean, the Premier made it quite clear in that same scrum that the government is going to do something about speculation, and mm-hmm. we're going to get a tax on real estate speculation, uh, and they think that will do some good, and that has been in planning for a while, this, and they think that will affect some of the abuses we've seen. The other point I've heard from New Democrats about some of the abuses that people are mentioning is they are violations of existing laws or um, examples of there not being enough regulation, of enforcement of existing regulations. So, you know, people point to people evading the Income Tax Act or lying about what their income is or uh, pretending to live here when they don't. Uh, all of that can be handled under existing regulation. So I think it's not fair to, to Horgan to suggest 
some of the coverage has, that he's not going to do anything. I think he is going to do things. Um, I just don't think that it's going to be... It's wise to start off with a, uh, with a tax on foreign buyers when we haven't even seen how that works in New Zealand. And I think it's a good idea for the New Democrats to press ahead with what they're going to do to discourage speculation and increase the housing supply. I think that combination may move things along, and it doesn't mean that next year or the year after, if that doesn't work, everything, they may try some other things as well. Uh, Rob, let's bring you in on this. So what are your thoughts? Well, we were, we were quite hard on Andrew Weaver in the previous segment uh, for his bluster, but I, I think this is exactly the type of thing that he, as the leader of the third party, should be raising because, uh, you know, the Liberals uh, are clearly not going to bring this point up. The NDP get put on the spot and have to declare their intentions. They have to explain themselves, and the public debates it. I'm not saying it's a good policy. In fact, I probably don't think that it is. However, um, it's the kind of stuff that Weaver should be doing uh, and bringing up questions that put Horgan on the spot that cause him to explain the core philosophy of his government. And the explanation we got was very similar to the Liberals, which is, you know, if we want to be a province that attracts foreign investments, we, we can't make a move like that. And I think people need to hear that from Horgan, because when they heard it from Clark and the Liberals, a lot of people scoffed at that. And, you know, now to hear it from the NDP Premier, I think maybe people might stop and think, well, yeah, I mean, here, here is the Premier going on a trade mission where he's going to be asking investors in China, South Korea, and Japan to purchase our products, to purchase our lumber, to trade with us, to invest in our province. And is it also a good idea to point out at the same time that they're not allowed, no one's allowed to come from these countries and purchase our land? And I think, I think the discussion is there and should be had. And so I guess I give Weaver some credit for throwing these grenades into the public debate. On Keith's point that everyone is suddenly an expert about housing, I mean, if you really want to boil down this issue, <laughs> the numbers don't bear out that foreign buyers are the sole cause for our housing problem. But mm. when you go on Twitter and when you listen to the debate and you listen to some of the of the people that continue to insist that this is the solution to get rid of all foreigners, to crack down on the wealthy Chinese who are buying all of the land and all of the homes. And <clears throat> that's the, really the problem for the NDP is that there is a perception among some of its supporters that that is the issue. And uh, if they're not willing to move on it, then they're going to wear a bit of a backlash whether that's the right move or not. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you got to separate immigration from, from the real issue. And I think that there is room to move on massive amounts of money from criminal organizations or rich uh, foreign nationals who are just looking to park some money in our economy. We don't want to be a shopping list for, for those kinds of people. Keith? No, you don't. But as Vaughn points out, there's a, there are a number of laws on the books that are being broken. And a lot of this comes down to a question of enforcement and putting resources in to ensure that the bad guys are caught. I mean, uh, money laundering is against the law, uh, but it's going on in casinos and people are tying it to real estate transactions. Well, there are laws on the books that are to prevent that. You don't necessarily need a ban on foreign ownership to stop money laundering. Um, The laws are very clear, but again, uh, some of this can be hard to catch, hard to enforce, but uh, it may be a question of redeploying some resources uh, in criminal enforcement to uh, to solve this problem. But uh, again, I, I I I'm very skeptical of, of as I say, armchair experts suddenly that this is the solution, um, as if they've suddenly studied this for years. This is a new thing, relatively new over the last few years. 
economists can agree on uh, on this. Uh, they're all over the map, and I'm not sure anybody can, uh, with any credibility, say, here's the magic bullet, because I just don't think there is one. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I tend to shy away from any sort of simplistic solution, uh, just out of general purposes, because I think there's very few simple problems in the world anymore. Uh, Vaughn, let's circle back to your, your taxation point. Uh, I, I want to notice that the previous Liberal government obviously put in that Metro Vancouver-specific foreign buyers tax, uh, and while that did sort of have an impact for three, four, five months, uh, over the long term, it really didn't do much. There's a lot more needs to be done on this, and of course the New Democrats uh, suggested very strongly in their platform that they had the solutions. Um, and I guess, you know, you give them a bit of time, obviously the big test for the budget is going to be how much is there in there. I think the interesting shift to me in all this, Shane, is before the election, most of the NDP's solutions were on the demand side, speculation, abuses of the system, regulation. But Horgan now, anytime he talks about it, is picked up the language of the previous B.C. Liberal government, which is you need to do something to increase the housing supply as well. He says you have to do both, demand and supply, demand and supply. Um, you know, there are people out there also, some of the armchair experts that Keith referred to, who say, well, increasing the housing supply won't do any good at all. Well, you know, that's as ridiculous as suggesting you shouldn't do anything on the demand side. I think, I think my inclination is, yes, the government needs to move on this. Yes, it was key to them winning 10 seats in and around Metro Vancouver. But, uh, you know, I think you also have to say, all right, well, let's see what all they're going to do and then see how it works and not kid ourselves that this problem, which has been building for years, can be solved overnight. Yeah, and I'm curious, Rob, whether you think that the NDP is going to take some heat no matter what they do with whatever housing plan they table next month, just because uh, of what Vaughn said, the complexity of this issue, uh, the sheer enormity of it, uh, unless they really pull something out of a hat, uh, whatever they pull out in February isn't going to solve all the problems in one go, and it's going to generate, I would assume, some kind of reaction, be it negative or positive, on all sorts of sides. Yeah, you know, Carol James has said that the the biggest issue facing New Democrats uh, is expectations. This pressure on them to solve the problems very quickly. When, as Vaughn and Keith have pointed out, housing is going to take a while. And so the budget, I think people will be disappointed no matter what the NDP come up with because it's going to take time to see the impact. And it makes you appreciate the brilliant short-term politics of the foreign buyers tax by Clark, which, it, you know, you can debate the policy merits of it, and it certainly didn't do anything to solve the issue. But for you remember her poll numbers went through the roof and there was a period of months there where people they liked the the visceral idea of this bold action. And so the NDP have to weigh that public's want for that immediate, you know, crackdown with policy decisions that will take months, if not years, to determine if they were effective. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break and get caught up to the news to the bottom of the hour. On the other side we'll carry on our discussions with Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry and Rob Shaw here on Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford.
Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're blessed with a couple of in-studio guests today. Uh, joining me in studio now, Housing Minister Selena Robinson. How are you? I'm I'm well, thank you. It's Good. great to be here in Kamloops. I haven't seen you in like a long time. In like a long time. <laughs> Since you left the coast. Okay. Yeah. How are you liking the whole government thing? Uh, they say that uh, your worst in government's better than your best day in opposition, and they're absolutely right. That said, you have maybe one of the most challenging portfolios uh, in a housing crisis that has was once a unique to Metro Vancouver situation. Uh, I think it has exploded now well past that. Uh, for example, here in Kamloops, we have a real estate market that's just crazy hot. Uh, we call them affordability refugees. People are fleeing Metro Vancouver and buying up properties here. So uh, I know that you can't spill a lot of details because whatever's going to happen is going to happen in the budget. But give me an idea. How tricky is it, this, this needle you have to thread on this crisis? Well, I, first of all, I want to say that I, I am honored to be the Minister of Housing <laughs> in this crisis because I think uh, what what John Horgan has done is put together with, with the housing ministries, put it together with local governments, recognizing that local governments that have the land use planning authority that we need to be working together. And so making sure that those two work in tandem. And of course, in Lower Mainland, I have the TransLink file. So making sure that we're working uh, together uh, on this is, is really critical. So that's the gift in many ways. And um, our opportunities before us are pretty immense. Uh, while others might say that they're challenges, I see them as opportunities, mostly because when I talk to people, regardless of what sector they're in, whether it's local governments that I'm talking to, or the private sector in, in housing that I'm talking to, or the nonprofit housing providers, or the co-op sector, everyone recognizes what opportunities there are ahead of us, and that's the stuff that I'm focusing on, because that's really what's going to make a difference for British Columbians right across our, our great province. All right. Uh, over recent weeks, sort of new life has been breathed into this foreign purchasers issue. Uh, uh, I know Andrew Weaver's asked to ban them. That has gained some kind of online steam. I know uh, the Premier is obviously opposed to that. But in the context of, of a magic bullet, would, would banning foreign purchasers, even if you're going to go down that road, solve all of our problems here? There is no magic bullet. And that's one of the things that I think we as British Columbians need to recognize. There's no one thing that we're going to do that any government's going to be able to do that will, will solve this. This has been an issue that has been ignored for a very long time. I remember being in opposition and raising the issue only to be told that we need to stop whining. People need to stop whining about housing. So we saw this coming a number of years ago and there was in inactivity. Uh, so really what we need to do is we need to address certainly uh, the speculation that we have uh, as well as making sure that we ad address some of those that demand side component and my colleague Carol James who's the Minister of Finance is taking a look at those, those the variety of measures that uh, that we need to be that need to be considered in order to address the demand side but we also have a supply issue and it's really the right supply uh, we know that uh, we, you know different communities have different needs and different kinds of housing uh, I've met with uh, at the UBCM I met with 62 different local governments most of whom talked about different housing needs that they that they had, but they were very different in different communities. So we're, we're not going to have a one-size-fits-all. So we need to look at supply and make sure that we can deliver the right supply for the right community. Um, and we also need to make sure that we're addressing security of, of tenancy. So we've really been spending some time with the Residential Tenancy Act and making sure that landlords and renters can have uh, some security about uh, that, that kind of housing. 
Uh, you also don't want the province to be sort of a shopping ground for for rich or drug money-enabled people. And there seems to be, to what degree is, is up in the air, but there seems to be an element of that. Will, will whatever you table in February tackle some of that problem? Well, we, we, no one wants to see criminal element in our, in our uh, real estate market and certainly around the speculation that's happened. And I know that my colleague, uh, David Eby, certainly sort of raised, uh, raised that issue. And uh, going forward in, in, the bu- in Budget 2018, we're certainly going to be taking a look at all of those sorts of issues and making sure that really we have uh, housing is really for homes for people who live, work, play and learn here in, in, our, uh, in our province. All right, let's circle back to the supply-demand issue. I know that uh, people like uh, the BC Liberals, Mike DeYoung, for example, says, oh, you know, we're going to try and hammer down on municipalities and, and remove some of those barriers and rush more supply onto the market. Uh, where do you fall on that issue? Is it a supply problem? Is it a demand problem? Is it more comprehensive than that? I would say it's all the above. It's yeah. very comprehensive, which is why we're working on a comprehensive housing uh, strategy, making sure that we're addressing all of these elements. There is no magic bullet. And, and I you know, follow on social media, and everyone thinks they have the answer. This is the thing that we need to do to make this better. And it, my life experience is that when you have this kind of complex problem, uh, that it's, usually there's many different things that you need to address, and you need to address them at, in the right sequence and at the right time in order to uh, manage the, you know, the, the entire scope of the situation. And uh, you know, I would argue that Mike DeYoung had 16 years to address this uh, and, um, and didn't. And, um, and that's really unfortunate. It's unfortunate for British Columbians. I know you used to be a, a councillor, so you have an interesting position have, coming from municipal politics into, into provincial. But uh, is is there a problem with 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 some of the stuff uh, municipally as far as you know going through the zoning and the bylaws and all that kind of stuff to get a project to market? There's certainly uh, a trend that I'm hearing uh, that it does take longer than one would think it should. T- take to move through municipal approval processes and I'm working together with the UBCM to try to identify ways that we can uh, make that move a little bit faster because it does cost a lot of money in that wait time and we need to address that and I'm prepared to work with with local governments. Before I was a city councillor, I'm a family therapist (laughs) and so my again my life experience. Well that should help you working with opposition (laughs) and stuff. Oh it certainly does. But really, when you think about having such an intractable problem that involves many different players in many different pieces, you really need to be working together with people and bringing them on side and making sure that you can identify the pieces that you can move on and uh, in order to deliver. And that's why I think John Horgan asked me to take this file on because it is how we need to be moving forward on this housing file. What role does or does not taxation have in this argument when you guys table whatever you're going to table in February? Is, is taxing speculation? Uh, is you know broadening the foreign buyers tax province wide thing are those things in play in your mind or, or no? Well, all of those measures, those opportunities are certainly in play, and uh, and um, I'm. Carol James, as uh, Minister of Finance, is exploring all of those, modeling all of those, identifying which are the pieces that would make sense uh, for our for our province, and helping to manage some of that speculation. Um, what's really I find very interesting when I listen to the radio or, or read articles or take a look at social media. There's such conflicting information out mm. there, right? And and uh, trying to weed through all of that to identify what are the pieces that are going to work, what are the pieces that are going to make a difference. Because at the end of the day, we want British Columbians to be able to take care of their families uh, and to, to live uh, in a way that they thought that they could live. Yeah. And that hasn't been the case for a long time. So we want to change the trajectory of that.
yeah, it's, <laughs> I just can't believe it took us this long to a recognize there's a problem and make steps. I mean, even on simple data collection, we're, we're, we're decades behind where we need to be. And that, and that was actually quite surprising that there's, there's data that is not being collected that one would think would have been collected. Yeah. And, and I, I lay that at the hands of, at the feet, not at the hands. <laughs> of the BC Liberals because they they were here for uh, 16 years and and I do remember being in opposition and saying are you kidding me like please do something this is what we're hearing we're hearing it on the doorsteps in all of our communities and really the the message back was it's not a problem it's not a problem it's not a problem but it really w- was a problem talk to me for a minute about the complexity of this and it's so so complex but uh, on one hand and I mentioned it earlier you have a problem with people leaving Metro Vancouver which presents a host of issues uh, on the other hand you have people moving into the Fraser Valley into Kelowna here into Kamloops which is in a lot of ways a boon for those communities and one of the challenges I think that you guys are going to have is as you table solutions is not to kind of pop a balloon now on either end you know you're going to solve the metro vancouver crisis without you know flushing out the interior communities who are suddenly benefiting and the flip side of that is you know and i think about families that are just getting into the market and uh, you don't want them to lose either Mm. right so if they're just getting into the market and they've bought at the high end and um, government takes actions that uh, um, deflates dramatically, uh, then these people are really stuck with uh, a mortgage that they can't, it's not sustainable. And I really worry interest rates have just gone up, are just going up again. And, you know, I really worry about sort of, you know, those who are so stretched financially, and those interest rates, I think, are going to continue to climb just based on what we're hearing and what the impact that has. So we, we recognize that there's a there's significant pressure to address that. And, and so it is. You said earlier, this needle, you know, th- to Threading thread. Needle, yeah. how, how are we going to do that? And so these are all the things that, that our government's taking into consideration and, and proceeding with caution rather than uh, what, uh, you know, some members of opposition might say, just do this or just do that. And it's like, really, if it was a just that easy, uh, then it would have been done. It, this is complicated, and it's going to take us some time to uh, to thread that needle. Uh, two more quick questions here. One of them, uh, whatever you table in February, is there any worry on your end that the, the issue itself and then the hype leading up to February, that whatever you table, if it doesn't magically solve everything, that, that people are going to be upset? Or in your mind, will it solve everything? Or is this? Are you, are you really saying this is step one, we need to do more, obviously, afterwards? We put together a, you know, a, a 10-year plan, and so it is, we recognize it's going to take some time to make things better, get it into the proper balance. Um, and I know that expectations are high, but I also believe that most British Columbians recognize the complexity of this housing crisis that we're in and recognize that steps, you have to take steps to move to move forward and to continually sort of chip away at it and, and make things better. So making sure that we do get, you know, enough speculation out of our market to help reduce the demand, making sure that we um, have, you know, the right kind of rental supply and that we can build up that capacity. It takes a couple of years to to get these you know, these buildings online, making sure that we address some of the local government processes and the challenges there are, or making sure that they have the tools that they need in order to get the right kind of housing in the right place. Making sure that we um, have, uh, you know, housing that, for example, that's rent geared to income. So those people making between thirty and $60,000 in the lower mainland, where that's not going to get you anything, um, that they have some space where they can, where they can, you know, live and work. So there's a lot of things that we need to be need to be working on in many different 
fronts. Many different cylinders need to be working in tandem, and that's the work that we're doing. All right. Uh, just switching hats, some municipal affairs and a bit of a shot in the dark. I don't know what you can or can't tell me on this front, but uh, as far as negotiations with the municipalities on the share of legal marijuana tax revenue, anything cooking on that front? or? Uh, well, right now we're just that 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 work is happening. I know that uh, local governments have certainly put that out, put that forward. Uh, they are, you know, bearing uh, the a lot of the brunt of what it means in terms of policing costs and all that, and d- dealing with neighbors and challenges. And I know that uh, my colleague Mike Farnworth, who's a, the Solicitor General, has been working very closely with the UBCM. They have a, a, t- a joint task force, and uh, that work is continuing. All right. How nice is it to be interviewed in a news station where TransLink doesn't matter? I know. I know. <laughs> A little, no, 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 no. <laughs> I just thought I'd give a little snark in the end there. Uh, Selena, a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Thanks, Shane. That was Housing Minister Selena Robinson. Well, we're going to keep going on Inside Politics this morning. A quick break to the top of the hour. On the other side, Health Minister Adrian Dix. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by Health Minister Adrian Dix. Uh, Adrian, the big story in your neck of the woods this week was this uh, allegation from the BC Care Providers Association regarding that $500 million announcement for seniors care last spring. I believe there's about 46 or $47 million due in the first fiscal year. Uh, they say they haven't seen a dime of that money. So I guess the big question to start out with you is, is that money coming in the first fiscal? And the, the answer is yes, uh, we're proceeding, uh, and it has several aspects to it. One of the major goals is to achieve uh, the goal of ensuring that um, in each health authorities we're meeting the standard of 3.36 uh, hours per care day, which is an important standard. At the end of the Liberals' time in office, 90%, that's 90% of care homes, did not meet the provincial staffing standard. And uh, so that, that was a significant uh, problem for our whole care home system. And that was after 16 years of the Liberals in office. So they can't say they, they hadn't got around to it yet. This was the result of 16 years of Liberal government. And, uh, and so we're dealing with that issue now. It's, uh, it's a significant issue. The money, the $46.8 million uh, that, that, was, that is scheduled to flow in the first year, is going to flow and is flowing. Uh, It's going to be going through the health authorities for a number of purposes, including um, uh, staffing, but also improving home care and home support and other purposes. And and, uh, they're proceeding now. Uh, With respect to the future years, um, it's a difference, I think, between the Liberals and myself. Uh, They put out a press release talking about $500 without having any budgeted money and assuming that federal money could be used for this that can't be used for this. And so my job is to meet that test uh, in spite of um, their failure to provide for their announcement. So we're proceeding. We're going to meet uh, our goal is to meet uh, that provincial standard of 3.36 in each, um, in each health authority and to improve home care and home support. And uh, that's what we intend to do in spite of the fact that uh, the Liberal press release of March was more... Um, more words and, and little action. All right, so uh, you're going to have to find, uh, if my math is correct, somewhere in the neighborhood of $440 million over the next three fiscal years when healthcare is already pretty strapped. Is that a fairly significant challenge? 
It is, but remember, not all of that money is for carries. I think the, the most uh, that included uh, significant money for community care, for home care and home support, all of which um, uh, I believe we'll be able to use the federal money for. Uh, you should know that we're negotiating with the federal government. Uh, the first year, um, the province got lots of uh, leeway to spend the money as they saw fit, and we're now negotiating with them about the details of how the agreement will go forward in the in, the, in coming years. But all of that money is going to go to seniors' care, and we'll support our efforts in seniors' care. So some of that, a significant portion of that money will be there, and we've got to find the rest of it and to meet the goals, and that's, uh, that's my job to do. But uh, you won't see me, part of the reason we've been low profile in this is that uh, you won't see me putting out press releases like the Liberals did. We're going to be substantive, and we're going to make changes step by step and day by day. It's not just a financial question. Probably a quarter to a third of care aides, for example, are over the age of 55 currently, right? And a significant, even a majority of them, are part-time workers, right? This is, this is a consequence of the previous government year after year diminishing the work of care, care aides and undermining that work. And you all know the issues involved, and I don't need to go into those in detail. So it's not just an issue of the money. We have to find, to meet the 3.36, for example, 900 net new care aides. And then we have to find other new care aides to deal with attrition and people retiring. So this is a significant health human resources challenge, and we need to apply resources to that, and we will. Uh, beside the fiscal and the human resource challenge, Adrian, I'm sure you're aware that uh, the other challenge is the pure amount of people in this province uh, from all sectors who are uh, old and getting older and who are continually pouring into the system, uh, ever raising that bar. I, I think so. But, but you know, there's there, uh, I think it's important to, um, to remember that all of those people have contributed to society, and this is part of the natural course of things. But what it shows, I think, is the need to provide appropriate care. So what the seniors advocate, uh, Isabel McKenzie, has said, for example, is that many people who are in hospital shouldn't be in hospital, and we can reduce costs that way, and many people who are in long-term care should be in, in less comprehensive levels of care. Uh, people want to remain at home as long as possible, and that's why I think it's so important that we not just talk about care homes, although they're very, very important, but we ensure there's sufficient resources in the community. It's less expensive to provide home care and home support resources in the community, and it's what people want. It's the best solution. If someone can stay at home, I don't know of anybody who wants to go in a, into a care home early. People want to stay at home and live their lives in full, and I think one of the challenges in seniors' care is that everyone talks about it as if it's a burden, and uh, and it, and it's true. There are real fiscal challenges, but we've also got to create the circumstances, supports in the community, home care and home support, a variety of options so that people can live their lives. And I think that's uh, to the full extent possible for as long as possible uh, that um, um, that life is more than avoiding death. Life is living, and we need to ensure that the services are there to help people do that as they grow older. Uh, just a slight deviation here, Adrian. Uh, you mentioned with the care aids the, the amount that are sort of older and skewing older. Yeah. Uh, we see that in sectors all over the place. We ran a story just last week about uh, from doctors at BC saying that uh, over 50% of doctors in the province are, are 50 years of age or older, yeah. uh, and that is going to pose its own problem as we already face doctor, doctor shortages. Uh, challenges there, yeah? 
Absolutely. It's not just doctors either. And they've raised those issues. Um, if you were to have an, uh, a discussion with the Health Sciences uh, Association about health science professionals, particularly in the interior and northern health authorities, there's real challenges there. We've spoken about care aides and nurses and doctors. So we have um, very significant health human resources issues. And that's why uh, we're responding by ensuring everywhere we go that we're focused on team-based care to allow all of our health professionals to work to the full extent of their abilities. And so this is going to require some changes in the way we address the healthcare system on the primary care side. And uh, it's a major focus of the work I've been doing. The work we've been doing uh, at our ministry, working with both doctors and nurse practitioners and health sciences professionals to address these issues because all of us see them coming and we can't, uh, some of them we can't avoid but we have to ensure that uh, we respond to it by, uh, by having teams and communities that can provide the care that people need. We're going to focus this, and one of the places that's a real focus for this is Kamloops. You've seen, and I would give credit to the previous government, uh, some of the initiatives that were provided, especially on the North Shore uh, with, uh, with uh, nurse practitioners, I think were good models to proceed with. And, uh, but we clearly have to do more. And we've been working with the Division of Family Practice in Kamloops on this and the Interior Health Authority to try and address these problems in the Kamloops community because people know this and people who are living in Kamloops know this, that, um, that for many people uh, in winter, the idea of waiting and lining up for a family doctor is a very difficult one. And generally, we're not waiting for a family doctor because we're feeling good. In order to address those challenges, you're going to need more doctors. Uh, doctors of BC saying they're losing about 400 a year in retirements. Uh, universities, as I understand it, can only graduate of, what, 288 or so. Any thought to uh, increasing space, lifting the cap there? Yeah, I, I think that I think we have to address some of that. and But some of it as well is ensuring that um, all, that people all health professionals do the work, um, do all the work they can do within their skill base. And that may be mean using nurse practitioners more and nurses more and health sciences professionals more and others as we try and address these problems because they're significant ones. I mean, the issue isn't just um, the number of doctors because BC has more doctors per capita than other provinces, right? The issue is, in some ways, primary care doctors and doctors that are needed in communities. And uh, we're very conscious of that, ensuring that the quality of of primary care is high. I think in a general sense, when people are seriously ill and they go into hospital, they get uh, good care in British Columbia. But sometimes we fail uh, to address in the community because of the lack of services. Um, the uh, the steps that can be taken to avoid going to hospital in the first place, and uh, that's what we got to focus on. And I know the doctors of BC are concerned about that. Uh, other healthcare unions are concerned about that, and lots of healthcare advocates in the in the population are. And that's why we're going to be presenting in um, in the months that follow a primary care pro- uh, program that helps address some of these growing concerns, but also improve primary care as it stands now. And I guess last question, the patient care tower, I know you've pledged to make sure that's built. Uh, any idea whether we'll see shovels in the ground in that this year or, or no? We're, um, my view is that uh, my understanding, I checked just before I, I talked, because, you know, when you talk to CHNL, you have to be ready, you know, <laughs> for all the tough questions. As Joe Easingwood used to say, you know, get set to talk about the issues there, Shane. And so um, the, the patient care tower is uh, on time, uh, on budget. Uh, we're at, uh, as you know, uh, one of the procurement stages now, 
and um, if anything, um, uh, all of my pressure is to is to move ahead of schedule. But right now, we're right on schedule as proposed. All right, perfect. Thank you, sir. Good to hear from you. Hey, right on. Take care, eh? That was Health Minister Adrian Dix. We'll take a quick break on Inside Politics here on Radio NL, and we're going to keep going on the other side. In studio, Liberal Leadership Contender Michael Lee. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined in studio by BC Liberal Leadership contender Michael Lee. Michael, well, how are you? Good, Shane. Thanks for having mm-hmm. me back on. Hey, thanks for coming back on. You're, I think, the first ever repeat in-studio guest on the show. So there Oh, you is go. that right? <laughs> yeah. <there laughs> Great to go. be here. Uh, you and I talked, I believe it was sort of in the beginning stages of the campaign back in October. A lot of water has crossed under that bridge since. So it I certainly guess, has. Uh, first thing first, uh, a bit of a different dynamic now that you're in the home stretch. So uh, how's the campaign? sitting and and how are you liking where you're your position now well we've been working hard at this for five and a half months now Shane and we've been traveling around the province uh, trying to broaden the appeal of this party and that's been one of my key messages for my campaign I feel like I bring a fresh perspective and a more balanced approach and in doing that uh, I think members and others in this province are hearing my message and they're being attracted to this party we need to regain the ground that we used to have and we need to, uh, for those who have been disaffected, perhaps, with the BC Liberal Party, we need to regain their confidence and their trust. So, uh, as you know, there was a big push in terms of membership. Uh, that's uh, Leaderships are all about uh, demonstrating the ability to appeal to uh, a broader cross-section of our, uh, our province. And I think I've done that. We signed up the most number of new members uh, by the membership deadline on December 29th. And as a result, I feel like I'm well-positioned uh, heading into the home stretch here. Uh, you know, we have to earn these votes, uh, whether you're a new member or a current member, and that's what I've been trying to do around this province as well. Now, I don't suppose you're going to tell me how many new members you signed up. No, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's not a numbers game that each candidate uh, and their teams get into, but overall, as you know, uh, there was about 30,000 new members signed up for the party, taking us to about uh, 63,000, and yeah. uh, uh, Diane Watts's team and my team have commented on the fact that... Uh, Looks like about two-thirds of those new members were signed up by each of our teams in total. Uh, you know, I'd say that uh, what that demonstrates is we need to bring new life to this party, new energy and renewal. And uh, uh, I think it takes someone like myself to be able to bring them. All right. So uh, I know I talked to Mike DeYoung last week who said uh, signing up new members is a, an important part of this race. So if you have, let's say, you throw a number out there, roughly 10,000, give or take, and Diane Watts has 10,000, that doesn't leave a lot for the other four contenders in a four-way split. So, uh, And the other component of that is uh, you have to sign those members up in ridings across the country. If you sign up 10,000 people in Surrey, for example, uh, that's not going to do you very good at all. So do you feel comfortable, A, uh, that you've got these new members in a, in a cross-section of the province and B do you feel comfortable with the fact that you have a lion's share and that the other uh, campaigns don't? Certainly geographic distribution uh, matters in this race. Each riding, each of the 87 ridings count equally and I have support in the Prince George area for example uh, in the Okanagan uh, as well as on the island and across Metro Vancouver. These are examples of the kind of geographic distribution I have. It's certainly uh, not centered in any particular city of this province, and that's going to be important. I think the other four uh, gentlemen in this race, who are very strong, uh, will be, like Diana and myself, appealing to the existing members too. And and that's going to be important, uh, because uh, every member in this party 
has an equal vote in this uh, important decision, and that's what we're going to be appealing to. Tell me about your strategy. Obviously, every campaign is going to be a first pick. Uh, but uh, talking to Todd Stone, for example, I know that one of his main strategies is to jockey to be the majority of second picks. When it comes to not being the first choice, where is your campaign at? Are you two jockeying to be a second pick among the different different choices out there, or, or no? I would say, Shane, I am, uh, and it's uh, you know it's been an approach I've taken from day one on this campaign at the end of uh, July. Um, it's been because I'm the one with the lowest name recognition the one who's new to uh, the BC Liberal Caucus, there are pre-existing relationships and awareness for some of the others here, and they're well-earned. And so I know that uh, for many of the party members, uh, this six-month process has enabled them the opportunity to get to know me. So as I travel around to uh, places like Fort St. John and Dawson Creek, uh, Creston and Councilgar and Nelson, uh, Courtney Comox uh, riding and, and Campbell River, uh, Merritt and Hope and uh, uh, Salmon Arm was there in Robustoke yesterday. These are the places I've been to uh, just in the last uh, week or so. Uh, you know, these are examples of the areas of the province where uh, people who get the opportunity to know me and get to know me face to face, you know, they would say to me, hey, you know, before I met you, you weren't even on my radar because I didn't know anything about you. Right. But after they get a chance to, to meet me, I feel like even if they have a preferred choice, Someone they've known and as a cabinet minister or, or mayor of Vancouver, mayor of Surrey, uh, that they do open up to give me a, a second or third look. And I think that that's where I have the most room to grow in this race. I always felt that that was going to be the case. Diane Watts has raised an interesting allegation saying that she feels that there may be some negotiations, collaborations among the other campaigns to make each other the second pick and try and shut her out there. Any comment on that? Do you, do you think that's true or, or, or no? Yeah, you know, I think that this is politics. I think that everybody wants to win this race and forge their alliances and things like that. Um, I haven't been directly involved uh, in those discussions. I know our teams are talking to each other. Uh, and, you know, there are people on uh, supporting other candidates in this race who have been supportive of me in the past. We have a long history with each other in the community or in, or in uh, this province. But uh, I would not want to see that dynamic. Uh, we are one team. Uh, ultimately, because of the rigor in, of this race, we will pick the best leader for this party. And, uh, you know, from the outset, uh, we need to work together. So uh, I'm very leery of uh, those sorts of dynamics in this race. I think they're probably going on, Shane, in some regard. Mm. Uh, but we need to come together, and, and uh, I think that uh, we're going to have the best leader at the end of this race. Some people I know on the show last week, uh, Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, were speculating about sort of lines of commonality about who would be whose second choice. They, they didn't quite know what, for example, a Mike DeYoung voter, who they would pick as a second choice. But they did say that because uh, perhaps of the conservative nature of your backgrounds, that perhaps a Diane Watts voter and a Michael Lee voter might choose each other as a second pick. Do you see a commonality there no, or, or no? Yeah, I, I think there's something there. Uh, you know, I... I uh because of my history uh, working with Kim Campbell and, and uh, progressive conservative youth uh, involvements back in the day in the late 80s, early 90s, I've had that history and involvements. Uh, I've built a very strong coalition team of BC Liberals and, and uh, federal conservatives and federal liberals. And, you know, the coalition is young and old and rural and urban and new Canadians and longtime Canadians. So it's, it's a very diverse coalition that we have in the BC Liberal Party. 
but I do believe that uh, you know there is some support there uh, who are um, on that side of the coalition, so to speak. And there are some commonalities there. But I'm also, of course, somebody who's progressive in my thinking uh, and approach with that balanced approach. And I've appealed to a broad spectrum, of course, uh, in this coalition. I think there are other voters, let's say, uh, who would vote for, uh, you know, a Todd Stone or a Sam Sullivan or Andrew Wilkinson that I believe will be supporting myself as well. Uh, the issue cropped up yesterday about uh, rejected ballots. I mean, not every ballot signed up or, or every member signed up, not ballot signed up, pardon me. Uh, not every member signed up is going to be perfect. Maybe a name's wrong, a date's wrong, maybe it wasn't filled out correctly. Uh, any idea of the impact on that, on your campaign at all, if there is any? You know, I think that uh, the party's done a, a really strong, uh, rigorous job to ensure the integrity of the selection process, and that's really important. For every candidate and every member of the party, we need to know that... Uh, um, the way the voting process was run and the membership signups were done appropriately and in a good form. Uh, there certainly are, uh, you know, incomplete forms, incomplete information. Uh, there's been definitely a different change in the system in terms of emails and credit cards and all the personal information that's required. And so I think that each of the campaign teams and the memberships that they submitted, uh, there's been some culling down in terms of ones that are uh, not accepted by the party. And I think. Uh, uh, I understand from my team, I'm at about the 3% level. Mm. Uh, I expect and hope that other teams are in a similar ballpark because that's going to be important. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's still uh, working itself through the system, but hopefully uh, the party should be completing that process shortly. All right. Uh, the big final debate is coming up January 23rd. This one's going to be televised. Uh, so there's going to be, and of course, it's the last one and the one closest to the voting day. So there's going to be more attention, more exposure. Uh, does that factor into sort of your strategy going into that or, or no? You know, I think that we've had, uh, it's been a long campaign. <laughs> we've had uh, uh, four uh, debates, as you know, around uh, in Prince George, uh, uh, Surrey, Nanaimo, and Kelowna. Uh, we had a, a, a debate a dialogue in front of the Indigenous Network for the party. That was the fifth opportunity. And I, th I think we've had about 10 other candidate showcases, as I call them, uh, in different ridings around this province, uh, and including the last one in the Burnaby Tri-Cities area. Uh, we have one on the North Shore um, after the uh, debate, the uh, televised debate. But this will be an important opportunity, certainly, on January 23rd, 7 o'clock on Global TV and all of that, it will be uh, an important opportunity for members across this province to have one last uh, opportunity to see all six candidates side by side. Uh, you know, I think this race, though, is more than just about debates. I think it, I hope that at this point, members have a better sense about each candidate and what they present and of my campaign and, and who I would be as leader of this party. And uh, the debate will be important. Uh, but the formats, as you know, are 90 seconds and a minute each, and uh, there's a bunch of dynamics that go on on that debate stage. We all participate in that uh, free-for-all, uh, but I look forward to it, and I look forward to uh, ensuring that the party members feel like they have enough information and a sense to make their choice come February 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. You mentioned it's a long campaign, and it certainly has been a long campaign, but we're now down to the short strokes. Uh, after the January 23rd debate, you've got roughly a week till voting day. What's your strategy in the last week? How do you approach that last week? You know, Shane, it's been a case since the membership cutoff uh, or deadline on December 29th that, uh, uh, and I see this with the other uh, competitors in this race, that we're each crisscrossing the province uh, 
trying to regain some support, either from existing members or new members, and that's what I'm doing. Um, my team and I have been identifying particular areas of the province that we, we feel we need to uh, strengthen uh, in terms of uh, support, and we've been going to those areas. And some, some areas we've been doubling back on. Uh, areas that we feel we've had great support in and uh, just to thank people for their support and, and their interest. Uh, so it's been terrific and that's what I'll be doing for the last week after the debate as well. All right. Uh, just out of curiosity, where do you think this, this and I know it's a rumor and, and it's been killed, uh, uh, so I don't want to approach it that there's any validity to it, but I'm just curious where you think the genesis is of this whole, you were running the campaign to really set the stage to, to have a mayoral run in Vancouver. I get, I mean, I sort of suspect where this came from, but where do you think the genesis of it was? You know, I was in Salmon Arm yesterday in a meet and greet, and uh, I was answering questions again, and, and someone asked me this question again, and I, I'm uh, frankly surprised about the um, the uh, carry of this particular uh, speculation or rumor. I, I've said uh, in the press in, in one particular interview that I had the view that uh, there's a not a lot of bad things that people can say about me. Yes, I have yeah. low name recognition. Yes, I don't have cabinet experience. But apart from that, and as you know, we've talked about this last time, I bring a different set of skills to the table in terms of my 30 years in the community and in politics and 20 years uh, working with resource companies and the private sector all, all over this province. So I bring a different set of skills from the other five. Uh, but, you know, you got to say something about the guy, right? So I feel like uh, there's been some smoke created in an effort to discredit my campaign. Any way you can chip away at something like that, and uh, I'm not, I don't know who originated that idea, but uh, it has... Uh, um, been spread in different ways. And it's very interesting in politics, of course. As you know, it's about information and speculation. Mm -hmm. And But I think it's important that we clear away some of that smoke uh, because the substance of my campaign is there. And, and I think people understand that, uh, you know, and my wife's here with I me mean, here with you in studio here. And, uh, you know, we don't, I don't drag her around this province for five and a half months <laughs> because I'm going to increase my profile and run for mayor after this because I'm here to run for, to be the leader of the BC Liberal Party and the next premier of this province. That's what I'm committed to do. Suddenly I feel a little bit like a marriage counselor. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ask her, if you ask her the question, yeah. you really hear the oh, answer to that. I'm sure <laughs> I would. I'm sure I would. Uh, just to back, clean yeah. up here, uh, really quick reaction. A big wave in the race uh, last Friday when Rich Coleman suddenly came off the fence and, and uh, threw himself into the DeYoung camp. Your thoughts on that? I have a lot of respect for Rich uh, and Mike. You know, they've done a lot for this party and they've done a lot for this province. Uh, they're uh, the two first caucus members that I talked to uh, after Christie announced. And so they're the senior members of our team. And, uh, you know, I, I understand Rich's comments uh, about Mike. Um, that's, that's his opinion. I know that uh, others in the party uh, may think that as interim leader, uh, he should not have stepped into uh, this race and expressed an opinion. But you know, it's it's Rich's decision. Uh, I, you know, I, I respect him a great deal, and uh, you know, I think that uh, it creates a different dynamic though uh, when they start to line up together, mm. uh, and others, uh, and it's just the interesting way that this campaign team uh, or the campaign process is unfolding, uh, and so I think it presents an even greater contrast to what I'm presenting. I don't have caucus support in the sense that there's no explicit endorsements within caucus. People are receptive to my leadership, um, in, including Rich and Mike, I believe, and other candidates in this race. Uh, but I am truly that new candidate with change renewal uh, to affect change for this party in this province. 
Well, Christy Clark didn't need much caucus support, as I recall. Well, the the person that supported her, Harry Bloy, supports me today. Too bad he's not in caucus anymore. <laughs> uh, quick final question here. Do you anticipate uh, a first ballot win, or are you thinking it's going to go a little deeper down the ranks than that? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that uh, if it was going to be a first ballot win, it would be Diane or myself. Uh, I don't think that uh, it's uh, going to happen that way. I, I think it's such a tight race. Uh, each of the campaign teams are fighting hard. Um, I expect that it's going to go into the second and third round area. Okay. Michael, always a pleasure. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Shane. Great to be here. That's BC Liberal leadership contender Michael Lee here on Inside Politics. And that's it for today's show. We'll see you right here on Radio NL for another edition of Inside Politics next week. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First.